Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Trudeau government seems to be in trouble as we come into federal by-elections today. Dr. Lori Turnbull will talk to us about the Prime Minister's troubles and what we can watch for in those election results. The Bell Media mass layoffs are going to have major ramifications, both short-term and long-term. John Best, formerly of CHCH-TV, knows all about that, and he'll talk to us about it. And Ontario is looking to expand strong mayor powers to 26 more cities, including Hamilton. We'll check with Queen's Park Observer Sabrina Nanji with her opinions on that. It's all coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's uh, get into the federal politics and the scene because, uh, well, this is actually uh, a big day. This is this is by-election day uh, in a number of uh, communities uh, right across the country today. We'll talk about that with our next guest. She is Dr. Lori Turnbull, the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. And Laurie, great to have you back. Hope you had a great weekend. I did have a great weekend. I hope you did too. Yeah, fabulous day. Fabulous and great Father's Day for a lot of us too, which is a, nice to get back into these sorts of things. Bef- I want to talk about the Trudeau situation because some polling came out today uh, that, I, that I wanted to get your read on. But let's let's talk about the by-elections first of all. There are four today. Uh, a lot of the time when when these things happen, Laurie, we, we look at this as, well, you know, it's probably not going to change the, the tenure of the government, but it can be an opportunity for voters to send a message. Uh, is there a message that we can expect to get today? I think there might be a few messages that we get today. It's true. Like the, by elections, typically you're not looking at something that's going to really change the way things are working in Ottawa. And th- I think that's the case now, right? Like no matter what happens mm-hmm. today, um, tonight. The thing, the the overall picture in Ottawa will stay the same. I think it's probably likely that the Liberals will keep the two seats they have. I think it's very likely that the Conservatives will keep the two seats they have. But it's all what's happening under the surface. Like, I think one of the, the ones, they're all ones to watch in their own way. Um, one of them is Oxford, in um, which, yeah. is tip, which is now a Conservative writing. And there's a lot of uh, interest in the candidate selection process in that writing and a lot of controversy over how the conservative candidate was selected. He's close to Polyev. Um, people are not happy with the sense that there's a parachuted candidate in. And so we'll see what happens there. I mean, it, it could be that the the disgruntlement is not enough to change the outcome, but it could be too. Like voter turnout is always a bit hard to predict in, in by-elections because it's not the same kind of heft as a general election and then everybody's talking about it. It's more of a, a kind of a one-off, uh, but we'll see, right? Like we'll see how many people come out. What happens when there's infighting like that? And as you mentioned in the Oxford by-election, uh, the conservative, I, I think it was his daughter, wanted the nomination. She didn't get it. And he actually turned around and started supporting the liberal uh, candidate. Now, I, I don't know how how much impact that has on elections. I mean, you know, if you're a conservative, you vote conservative and liberal, liberal, I guess. But personalities could come into play here. Uh, and like you say, I don't think it's necessarily going to change the, the the outcome of the election. But it's it's always interesting when you see people kind of butting heads like that. Oh, yeah. And I mean, for a local riding association, um, being the leader and choosing the candidate and facilitating that process is a really significant part of what a riding association does. There's so much power and decision making in the leader's office. And this is one of the ways that that the local riding can have some effect on the process. And it's a way to reinforce the relationship between the candidate and ultimately the MP and the local riding. And so if you get the sense that the leader's office is going to bring somebody in that who they want to see 
you know, in that in that seat in a way that the local riding doesn't have a lot of control over who the candidate is, it can actually really uh, lead to a lot of burn bridges in the sense that this is, you know, what are, what are we doing supporting the party if the party is not going to support us? And so it's and the other thing, too, is so uh, necessary. This is an unforced error. We usually talk about the liberals unforced errors bill, but this is mm-hmm. one for the conservatives, I think, in the sense that they didn't need this. They didn't need this kind of drama. Now, it absolutely could be the case that the, the conservative candidate still wins. Because when you've got a base of support, you're going to have a lot of people who don't say anything about it, but come out and show up and vote for the conservatives because they're conservative. But, um, you know, the the fact that the the former MP has actually taken to the public to say that he's going to support the liberal is quite an interesting turn of events that could have um, that could have an effect here. And the other thing is because a by-election, you know, when you're voting in a by-election, it's often with the knowledge that the government is not going to change hands no matter what. So it gives you a bit more freedom to, you know, have that protest vote if that's what you want to do, because you can do so with the, with the safety of knowing that the, the overall result is not going to change. Uh, one other that I do want to touch on, um, because I'm fascinated to get your read on this too, is, is the one in Manitoba. Uh, and as you mentioned, this is uh, Candace Bergen, of course, the, I guess, now uh, former MP uh, stepped down. She was the interim leader until they selected Polly. We all know the history there. Uh, but it's not just her. It, it's it's who else is on the ballot. I mean, there is a conservative. It's always been a conservative seat. But Maxime Bernier has registered for that. That's not his hometown, of course, but he's kind of mm-hmm. a parachuted candidate. Uh, but he's, of course, the, the head of the People's Party. Um, mm-hmm. Be watching with great interest to see just what kind, if any, support he he should attract down there. Just And I know Pierre Polyev and some of the other folks in the conservative uh, hierarchy are, are not just wanting to win, they want to crush this guy and basically mm-hmm. get him off the political landscape. Uh, what, what's going to happen there? Oh my goodness, this is a really interesting one for me to watch. Now, if I, if I'm um, guessing, I I would think that the conservative will still come first. So yeah, the big question is how much of the vote Bernier is going to get. I think in the last election, the PPC got twenty percent. And so there's a reason for him to think he's got a base to grow on here if he wants to do that. I mean, it's so obvious that he is not a candidate from this area, right? Like, it's so, he is so mm-hmm. obviously a, a parachuted candidate who is there to try to bring some awareness to what the party is doing and try to take, I mean, even if, I think from his perspective, even if he doesn't win, take as much of a chunk out of the conservative vote as he can so as to send a message to people that the PPC is viable and that the conservatives have something to be worried about. I think no matter what he does, no matter how he finishes tonight, he's going to walk up to the mic and give a victory speech like he won the whole thing, right? Like this is all about momentum for him. For the for the conservatives, it's tricky because if Bernier does well at all, there's going to be a lot of pressure in the party to say, look, like the PPC is going to be a problem for us in the next election. We have to figure this out. We have to figure out how to close that in. What do they do with Bernier if he does well? On the other hand, though, um, any more of a shift in that direction, I think, could cost the conservatives something in terms of expanding their vote in other ways. And I think we can see, you know, some of the polling that we've seen over the past week or so. Polyev is putting up a lot of negatives. He's remain he remains a very polarizing person and he's not building a broad coalition, right? Like even if he's having resonance and taking Trudeau down a few notches, he isn't necessarily building his own vote. And so he might be in a real tug of war between the PPC on the one side and then more centrist voters on another. Well, just on that point then, as we know, Aaron O'Toole, of course, uh, stepped down last week uh, after this session going into 
uh, the summer recess. He's finished uh, with politics now. But his exit speech was rather interesting um, because he talked about Polyev and basically said uh, if he and the conservatives don't moderate their policies and their stands on some issues, you're not going to be successful in the next election. He says you got to win in the cities and that kind of politics isn't going to win. Is, is that a backhanded slap at his uh, successor or is he, is he just reading the the political tea leaves here? Hmm. I think it's a little bit of both. I don't think there's any, I mean, I, I doubt that there's any love lost between Aaron O'Toole and Pierre Polyev. I think that was a pretty, you know, that that can't have been a great moment for Aaron O'Toole to have been voted out by his own caucus. And, you know, he was hardly a leader for any length of time. And all of a sudden he's he's on his way out. And so I think for him, um, he's he's not only a former leader, he's a pretty long-term politician. He's somebody who's been around for the various machinations of the party. Um, he's somebody who would probably care quite a lot about the, the future of politics and the future of conservatism in politics. And he probably is thinking about, yeah, like, you know, here's, here's some things you might want to think about if you want to win the next election. His own experience is very, is, is very instructive, I think, to other conservatives where I think he went in and tried to promise a lot of things to people during the campaign for leadership so that he was ultimately successful. But then those ideas don't necessarily shop well in the rest of the population. He's saying we should, you know, in that tug of war that we were talking about, he's saying we shouldn't be pulling farther to the right. We should be pulling farther to to catch some of those voters who live in cities who are not interested in any of this stuff that you're talking about. But um, we'll see. Like, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how this is all going to break down. And I do think that the four by-elections tonight, the conservatives could be the ones with the most to lose or the most to gain, because this is really, I think, a moment where it's a test for Polyev and where he's taking the party. Uh, under the banner of uh, leaders who are uh, in hot water these days, uh, we would be remiss if we didn't mention the prime minister uh, for some of the oh, stuff, yeah. of course, that's gone on over the last uh, few weeks now. Uh, Angus Reid polling, I know that you were just looking at a couple of minutes ago, as, as I was, uh, that basically says even liberal and NDP supporters, who I guess theoretically should be supportive of this of this alliance that they've got, uh, don't think the government's doing a very good job and don't have a very high opinion of, of the prime minister, which probably doesn't come as news to him or to us, I guess, for that matter. Uh, but it doesn't play well for a party that's trying to build support when and if that next election comes along. Absolutely. Um, and I think that any... To me, like any polling about, you know, the future of the country, the direction of the government, and even the viability and the the worth of the confidence and supply agreement is all, th these are all multiple ways of asking about the prime minister himself. Um, the kinds of, of hits that the government has taken um, over the past number of weeks in terms of the foreign interference file in terms of the public safety file and the handling of the Bernardo situation, all of that is just contributing, I think, no matter where you fall on those issues, no matter where whether you think foreign interference is a major problem, no matter whether you think Johnston should have been the one to deal with it, whether like however you think we should handle that, whether or not you think Marco Mendicino should have, you know, how he should have responded to the Bernardo situation, all of it points to a kind of across-the-board concern around how the government is governing how it is handling things broadly. Is it internally organized? How is communication working? Are there decisions being taken deliberately at the right times? Is there a communication to the government from the government to the public about why things are happening? Those questions of just operational competence and a sense that things are working right. Those are the sorts of things that, again, no matter where you fall on the specifics of those issues, 
those are the things that come across and resonate. And so, no, I mean, the government is, is I think, probably very anxious to put the session to bed and, and go on summer holiday. Uh, but on that point, uh, I'm sure you saw Susan Delacourt's uh, column in the Toronto Star the other day uh, saying Justin Trudeau's government is in trouble and needs a major change. And she suggests four things that he could do. And they, they range from a cabinet shuffle, a staff shakeup. He's had a lot of the same staff there ever since he was elected. Uh, renegotiating a deal with the NDP or maybe even step down as leader. Uh, are any of those things even viable or any of these things in, in the offing? What do you what do you see? So I think that the prime minister has actually been waiting for these four by-elections in order to shuffle the cabinet because either of or both, honestly, of the two people who will probably win for the Liberals tonight would be obvious cabinet material. Uh, Carr uh, being um, the the late Jim Carr's son. Uh, this is a liberal seat in Manitoba, a liberal seat on the West. Um this to me, I wouldn't be surprised at all if we saw Mr. Carr in a cabinet if he wins tonight. And again, he is a former president of the party and very close to the Trudeaus. Uh, he's got th- three ministers from Montreal already, plus himself. So that's the only issue I see there. But I wouldn't be surprised for her to, to for him to find a way for her to come into cabinet. And so I think a shuffle is probably coming. We haven't seen one in a while. It's always a way for the government to kind of remake itself without actually going to the polls. And so I don't think we'd be surprised to see that at all. Um, As far as the confidence and supply agreement, like I just I've always thought they don't need this. They don't need it. You know, it's not like they did it in the in B.C. that time where like the government was hanging on by a thread. It's a weird it's it's a kind of strange circumstance between the liberals and the NDP because they agree on so much. But the government has quite a sizable minority. So it's it's not like they absolutely need to write it all down, particularly given the uh, the value based overlap in terms of what they're trying to achieve. They could write a new agreement to show that they're still serious, to show that they're thinking ahead. But I don't know if that that would even be enough, to be honest, because I think at this point um, there's a palpable sense of fatigue with the government. It is a risk for the government, I think, to go to election anytime soon. It's a risk for the conservatives, too, because, as we see, Polyev is not uh, exactly like you know, fired up with popularity either. Both of them have more negatives than positives. Singh is the wild card. He is the one, I mean, he's got a lot to lose given that he's got some leverage at this point, but it's also possible that people who are, who find the other two leaders just not appealing at all could look to somebody like Singh if he's playing, you know, if he's, if he's playing things right and he's in the right writings at the right times. Well, but to that point, why would you have to renegotiate that deal? I mean, if Singh wants to throw something else on the table, knock yourself out. I mean, you know, what, exactly. what are they going to say? No. And if they say no, well, then you have to make a decision about what you're going to do. The, the thing that bothered me, I guess not bothered, but when I looked at the, the these four potential alternatives, uh, too much of this stuff is inside baseball stuff. I don't think Canadians pay much attention to that. They're just disgruntled with the government. You want to shuffle yeah. the cabinet, go ahead. I mean, we most people don't even know who's in the cabinet anyway. Uh, you know, and staff shakeups. Well, you know, that doesn't resonate with the average individual, too. So the only thing that would even change that dynamic dramatically, of course, would be a change in leader. And I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think it is either. And I completely agree that that of, of those four ideas, that is the one that would actually shake things up. And that's the one that's the least likely to happen on the staff side. I mean, yes, there are some people who have been there this whole time. Um, Katie Telford has been chief of staff this whole time, for example. But they're all at the same time. I'm not disagreeing with the point that some people have been around for the whole time. Um, there are also in some office, in some offices, in some uh, circumstances, there's a lot of turnover. 
So you also get new staffers who don't necessarily um, have as much experience as the ones who came in in 2015 who had worked for previous liberal MPs and liberal governments. And so it's a bit it's a bit complicated to figure out what's going on on the staff side. I think um, Trudeau, like there's there's questions about, you know, like, is, is he going to take this decision? And, and I think when we were talking about this a year ago, it felt maybe more at that point, like he might read the tea leaves or, you know, see mm-hmm. the writing on the wall or whatever the right metaphor is at this point. Walk in the snow, I guess. Now I feel like he's doubling down. I feel like Polyev is doubling down as pe- as their negatives go up, they become more entrenched. And so I don't I don't see that happening at all. I think he's I think he's going to stick around. They are not going quietly into that summer break. We'll see what happens in the next few days. Uh, Laurie, thanks as always for this. Have a great week. We'll talk again soon. Sounds great, Bill. Take care. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to go back to the story that uh, that we covered uh, last week, of course, and that was the announcement about uh, massive layoffs uh, from Bell Media, from the, basically the news operations. Uh, globally, I mean, worldwide, it wasn't just uh, in the Hamilton area, Toronto area, whatever the case may be. I mean, the London Bureau basically shut down. It's cut a lot of people off guard, and they will have some short-term and long-term ramifications, not just to the people at Bell either. Uh, to talk about this, please to welcome back to the program, John Best. Uh, John, of course, is the publisher of the Bay Observer. He's uh, been in journalism for a long time. I- I'll let him. <laughs> also, the former news director uh, back in the-, the glory days of CHCH. And uh, one of their incredible newsrooms, one of the best newsrooms in Canada back in their time. John, I'm glad you had some time to talk to us today. Thanks for joining us on the program. Well, it's my pleasure, Bill. Nice to be with you. Well, as a guy who's been there, done that for the longest time, as you have, and and worked with some of the best in the business and hired some of the best in the business, what's your view on the state of the industry and what you're seeing happening here? Well, it's, you know, there's there's no way that it is not disheartening to see uh, the, the entire journalism industry. It's not just broadcast journalism, it's print um, under this uh, just seemingly death by a, a thousand cuts. Um, I still believe that uh, there's a place for journalism. That's the reason I still do it. I mean, I certainly don't do it to make a living. Um, I, I continue to do this because I think it's, it's uh, Im- important that, there be someone in a community that uh, maybe takes a little bit of a different view of things and tries to uh, maybe get behind the news a little bit. So that's my story. But really, uh, and and you said it earlier today, uh, I think in your comment, that that the real key is local news. To be honest, um, these bureau shutdowns by CTV are not nearly as critical as the uh, the hollowing out of these local news stations like CKOC and uh, CFPL London and Windsor. I mean, those are the places where the cuts really, really hurt because if you're not uh, running a robust newsroom that's keeping an eye on local government, you're, um, you're just missing the boat. And I guess the other thing, Bill, I was reading a stat. Now, this was BC only, but but think of it as all of Canada. Journalists in British Columbia are now outnumbered by PR people 18 to 1. And I would think that that number would even be higher if you took the whole country into account, because think of Toronto, uh, the number of organizations that are based in Toronto that all have robust PR departments. And this isn't to knock PR because I did some of that as well. When you work in this business long enough, you do it all. But (laughs) I got to tell you, 18, uh, it, it kind of made me laugh because I thought 
well, if journalism is dying, uh, why do you need all these PR people to manipulate uh, a journalism community that is really on the, on life support? So it's kind of funny, but um, you know, it's it's just a sad time, Bill. Uh, until we solve the economic problem that has been created largely by technology, uh, the internet has you know it's a wonderful force. It it allows the BayObserver.ca to exist. I I can reach people through the internet. And yet here we are. Um, it's also such a source of disinformation, uh, such a source of news theft um, that it, it's really, you, you know, it's kind of a you're trying to put out a pure product in a very toxic environment. It's a, it's a real swimming with sharks situation. Well, and I did touch on that in my commentary earlier this morning on, on CHML. Uh, using the old Tip O'Neill quote, you know, that all politics is local. Uh, all news is local, too. Uh, and it's it's the job of of the journalist, the broadcast journal, print, whatever it's going to be, John, uh, to to make that point and and to to tell it why it's relevant. You know, why should I care about what city council did last night? Well, because it has a direct impact on your life, on your taxes. You know, whether or not your street gets plowed. Uh, the same thing with federal government policies. You know, with, well, you know, mandates. I mean, in the worst case scenario, with pandemics and things of this nature, it's relevant. And uh, I would I would argue. That, as you just stated, because we have the internet and so much information, almost an information overload, uh, journalism is more important than ever because somebody has to to sift through this and and, and talk to us about this and 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 give us some perspective on this. And some people on social media on some of those pages do a very good job of that. Others not so much. And it's hard to tell one from another oftentimes. And. Uh, I, I just don't think that the, the people that are making these decisions necessarily understand their commitment to the community. And, and it is a commitment. I know it's, you know, they, they've got bills to pay and, and you know, they've got shareholders. I get all that. Uh, but when you get a broadcast license, it's a pretty powerful tool, isn't it, John? And, and with that power comes responsibility. Well, it is. Uh, and it certainly has been. And, and I think one of the reasons the legacy media were able to survive for so long was frankly uh, barriers to entry. I mean, it cost uh, a million bucks back in the 50s to start a TV station and hardly anybody could do that. So in Hamilton, really the local media banded together, CHMLs, um, CKOC and and uh, Southam who owned the Hamilton Spectator, uh, they all threw uh, some money in the hat and started a TV station. Starting a newspaper was even more difficult, the cost of setting up a newspaper. So because you had that exclusivity, you also had exclusivity of audience, and, and that made it a very attractive advertising vehicle. Now with the internet, um, you know, the, the, there are so many places people can get advertising information that that exclusivity is gone, and you know, all you got to do is flip through any uh, print publication and see uh, how few ads there are. And so the model of, I, I still think there's value in creating good journalism. Uh, I mean, the model, the way it worked was you create good journalism and, and because you've done that, you develop an audience and because you've developed an audience, advertisers are attracted to your product, but that's all gone out the window now because uh, you can, you know, the internet is so much more targeted it's more measurable um, so that's where the advertising dollars have gone. And it looks like we're going to have to come up with some kind of a formula. You know, the newspapers largely are using paywalls now. Uh, but you don't, when you read the financial results, it doesn't feel like it's really helping uh, make them stronger. 
maybe we'll turn a corner uh, with a more subscription-based uh, kind of a financial model. I think that's probably the way it's got to go. But in the meantime, we're losing uh, just some some outstanding people. That that CTV gutting, um, I mean, that that just took out their uh, Washington bureau, their London bureau, um, uh, a very good uh, reporter in Ottawa, and uh, the, the one in LA. I think you could have dispensed with, but uh, you know, that's a that's a lot of high priced talent um, and and high talented people uh, leaving uh, leaving the industry and not being replaced. And and this is not, as some people have characterized this, uh, as you say, uh, you know, traditional media, so to speak, against the internet. I mean, you know, uh, Bay Observer is, is you know, it's it's on the internet. Uh, our radio station is. I mean, there, there's there's potential here for a sense of cooperation uh, and, and, and coexistence, really. Uh, and it can be mutually beneficial to both, but at the same time, I mean, the, but there there've got to be some rules and regulations about who's using content and who's using whose content, and and that hasn't yet been sorted out. Notwithstanding this legislation that the federal government just tried to put forth, uh, Facebook has already pushed back, and they're blocking some people from getting any news sources at all on their platform. So, I mean, and, until we can all get a, a common goal here, I don't know that this is going to get settled anytime soon to anybody's benefit. No, and and uh, of course, Facebook tried that tactic in Australia, and they ended up having to revert to the existing model. Um, it, it's going to be very difficult for uh, the CRTC. At one time, was king of the castle. Uh, you know, people's hung on uh, every pronouncement that came out of uh, Hull, Quebec, from the, the CRTC. But they have been absolutely useless when it comes to what's happening to traditional broadcasting, radio, and television. And, you know, they, they, they seem to be a little more effective in, in controlling telecom, but they, they, they just don't have a clue uh, how to manage uh, what's going on with uh, television and radio broadcast journalism right now. And, and to some degree, they're, they're almost quaint. They're almost um, uh, an anachronism, uh, not suggesting they should be disbanded, but they certainly need to be changed in, in some way. I saw a uh, a, a thoughtful article last week that was trying to figure out is there a way out of this? And they largely argued that direct government support is not the answer. Uh, it's going to compromise the journalism. What they did suggest, though, was uh, that if you're going to have a subscription-based model, whether it's a podcast or whatever, that um, that subscription fees be tax-deductible. Now, whether that would be enough of an incentive for people to sign up, if it was a 100% tax deductible, that might work. But, um, you know, taking 50 bucks off somebody's, uh, you know, income for the year, I, I don't think it's going to be a huge incentive. But there may be a way through the tax system where it it's indirect support from government, but it's not direct support. It's not a direct grant. The other suggestion they had is they said that, you know, we've got to look at CBC uh, CBC is now operating all kinds of platforms that are competing with the private sector. Um, and, and now they're even CBC now wants to get into what you call sponsored content. And you and I know what that is. Uh, it's basically infomercials. Uh, mm -hmm. CBC should not be in the infomercial business. Um, I mean, infomercials may be, frankly, a necessary evil in order to support some of these platforms. But CBC getting a billion dollars a year doesn't need it. They, they've got a wonderful radio service. I wouldn't touch it at all. 
but uh, their television uh, and, and some of these streaming platforms are really uh, uh, totally redundant. They, they, they have no news audience to speak of in, in the local markets. I think they get something like six. I think their overall viewership is something like 6%. So it's not abolish the CBC. It's it's keep the things that are good, like the radio, um, and, and scale it back so it's more like a PBS and, and a lot less like being in every other media's face. That'll help well, a bit. Yeah, there, there's got to be some discussions here about some of these solutions. And and again, as I mentioned at the beginning of the of our conversation, it's not just about job loss. And, and, that, and that is... For those people, certainly a, a concern, but I'm, I'm talking about the future of the industry uh, and and some guardrails and and some assurances, I guess that uh, that everything is going to be at least I, I don't we'll ever attain a level playing field, but at least a more fair one anyway. Uh, more to come on this, as they say in our business, John. Thanks so much for this today. Really appreciate the time. My pleasure, Bill. Thanks, John Best from the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, a whole bunch of mayors in Ontario got to power. Matter of fact, they got more power with an announcement last week from uh, the premier that strong mayor uh, designations will be awarded to a number of 26, I think it was in all. Joining us to talk about that and uh, other things provincial. uh, So pleased to welcome back to the program, Sabrina Nanji, publisher of Queen's Park Observer. Uh, Sabrina, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Hi, Bill. Happy Monday. Good. You, you, you uh, always follow these stories, and you told us just a little while ago that you anticipated there was going to be an expansion of this strong mayors thing. Uh, and by the way, the Hamilton mayor and, and the London mayor both are on that list, and, and they will, as of July first, to have strong mayor authority and powers in so many different ways. Uh, but they're, they're all saying the same thing, aren't they, Sabrina? Oh, I, I don't think I really want that. I want. I don't think I can see that. Uh, it's early. It's early days. So I guess they're they're trying to be modestly accepting of this whole thing. But I don't hear anybody turning it down. Do you? Yeah, um, you're you're right here. Uh, it, it seems like it's a bit of a, a hot potato, but it kind of depends on who you ask. You're right. I think um, you know the only mayor who had really been asking for this is, is not even mayor anymore. That's John Tory yeah. in Toronto, and we've already we already know that Toronto and Ottawa have already gotten these uh, enhanced strong mayor powers. So just really quickly, you know, the, I think the biggest one is that they get a veto over certain bylaws, more powers over the budget. Um, and, you know, two thirds council vote could override that. Uh, but, you know, I, in, in any case, these mayors are going to be a lot stronger. And I think that, um, you know, some are, are happier than others. I know Patrick Brown, uh, Ford's predecessor at the PC party, you know, previous political opponent, um, in a sense, like he, he said that this is going to bring more accountability, uh, more transparency to decision making. But you're right that it's, um, you know, maybe no one wants to be the mayor that has to be a strong mayor, seen as, you know, not working with council, which is also elected. Uh, the New Democrats, the official opposition at Queen's Park are saying that Doug Ford is undermining democracy. But I, I think that we we kind of need to see what the mayors need to do with this. It is true that a lot of other uh, cities that are comparable to our big cities here in Ontario, uh, you know, south of the border in the state, places like Chicago, I'm thinking they have uh, stronger mayor powers. And and if this is a way to be able to, you know, stop some of the gridlock that we've seen at, at city halls across the province, I think kudos to that. But certainly um, no one really wants to be that mayor that's just bulldozing their agenda through because we can't really forget about councillors uh, and, and that they're also elected officials too. So I think that this could, this could potentially be, uh, you know, something that's good for, 
for getting policies and agendas through and, and actually making things happen. But it could also be, a, you know, a, a whole political can of worms uh, and, and could be a, a very rough ride uh, at, at some city councils over the next couple of years. Well, the wild card in here that doesn't, nobody seems to really want to talk about is all these powers are going to be granted and as of the 1st of July, I guess it is, uh, on the pro- uh, premise that it ha- o- they can override a council decision if it's contrary to a provincial policy decision like housing or uh, expansion into the green belt or something like that. Uh, but does that mean they can only use that exclusively to try, basically, as some people are characterizing it, to defend the Doug Ford policies at the municipal level? Uh, so that they're looking for a bunch of advocates here, not really strong mayors. Yeah, I, I think there is certainly some truth to that. I know that we did have the fine print um, because initially when these were announced, these strong mayor powers were announced for Toronto and Ottawa, there was just sort of this general um, line that we got from the government saying that this this will only apply to provincial priorities. Well, of course, you know, what does that mean? That's so vague. That could mean a lot of things. We saw the fine print from it. A lot of it had to do with housing, but it's still very vague. Um, and, and you're right that they are kind of giving these powers to folks who have already really signed on to what the Ford government is promising. Uh, I, I think it was a surprise even to some of the mayors. Uh, I'm thinking Thunder Bay, uh, Chatham-Kent, Newmarket, Sudbury, who did not get these powers yet. And, you know, the housing minister, Steve Clark, just was upfront about it. He said, you know, these are the cities that have yet to sign on to our provincial housing pledge. Um, of course, you know, that could change. Um, they, they could sign on and, and then get these powers. But uh, it, it seems clear that if you're not on board with the Ford government's agenda, you're not going to get these powers. And obviously, their justification is housing here. They have an ambitious housing plan and the municipalities are going to be doing the heavy lifting for it. So I think, um, you know, it's not too late if those municipalities want to get those strong mayor powers in. But um, as you said, it, it's the devil is going to be in the details here and it, it's all going to be how it's rolled out. I mean, we have an election a, a week from today in Toronto uh, and, you know, some of the candidates, some of the front runners, including Olivia Chow, who, you know, is in the lead, has said that she would not use them. Now, of course, <laughs> we know politicians of all stripes can, can say one thing and do another. I mean, I just look at Doug Ford and, and his promises over mm-hmm. the green belt, but uh, I, I think that, you know, it, it will be interesting to watch which mayors, um, see this as useful when when the time comes. Uh, the other story I wanted to get your read on, too, is, is of course, uh, as we talked about, of course, Bonnie Crombie, who's the mayor currently of Mississauga, uh, has thrown her hat into the ring. She wants to run for the leadership of the Ontario Liberal Party. Uh, interesting column in uh, in The Sun uh, from uh, good friend Brian Lilly, a Hamiltonian, uh, who's covering Queen's Park and has for many years. Uh, the headline says, Crombie is running for a Liberal Party that no longer exists. And and I know you've read it, but just for the sake of our listeners, the crux of the, of the piece here that Brian's writing about is uh, – She's trying to make, and she's quite open about the fact that she wants to move the Liberal Party back towards the political center uh, because Kathleen Wynne drove it way, way further to the left uh, and suggesting that there probably isn't even a desire within the Liberal Party to move back to the center. They are what they are these days. Uh, What's your read on what's going on? First of all, can she win and can she reshape the the headspace for, for the Ontario Liberal Party? Yeah, I, I did read uh, Brian Lilly's column. I thought it was very compelling. And, you know, I, I think he's one of the, the columnists. Of course, I would have to toot my own horn here. But I, I think he's got his finger on the pulse of something here. And yeah. he's onto something because it's it's true that, um, 
you know, Bonnie Crombie has said she wants to move the party more to the center. She has told some folks that center right. She kind of uh, backtracked that one a little bit. But uh, we have seen in past elections, the liberals, whose brand is still going very strong, um, sort of try to, you know, outlaugh the NDP in some ways. And they have sort of moved towards the left in terms of their policies that they're pitching. You know, the last few elections in Ontario, it was hard to tell the difference in terms of policy between the New Democrats and the Liberals. And that has worked for them in the past. I mean, Kathleen Wynne called herself a social justice warrior, and she enjoyed the premier's seat for quite some time under that agenda. But now I think we're seeing a bit of a shift um, in Ontario, too, uh, because obviously we know, you know, the conservatives of progressive conservative government has been the majority here for the, the last two elections. Uh, Ford won a, a whopping majority mandate, but he's also kind of put the emphasis on progressive and progressive conservative. You know, he's a big spending premier. He sort of changed his tune. And now he's the premier that says, yes, that's building. Um, that's, you know, a, a lot of people will say it's not enough, but he is giving more money than probably we, we, we could expect from a, you know, conservative government. And Bonnie Crombie is kind of pitching herself as the the happy medium here. And so, well, I think that, you know, a lot of folks in the party have been pushing and, and veering left. I know Nate Erskine-Smith, another front runner, has said that he's going to do the opposite of Bonnie Crombie. He's going left. He's not shy about it. Um, I, I do think that this is shaping up to be a, a fight for the direction of the Liberal Party. And while there are a lot of people who want to go left, I think there are a lot of people that believe that elections are won on the center. Um, they're going to make a play for Doug Ford's base, too, which obviously is more conservative. Bonnie Crombie's talking about how she's fiscally conservative, socially liberal. I think that that could... Uh, that could be very appealing to a lot of people in a general election. But of course, Bonnie Crombie has to win the party leadership first. Um, and so she'll have to she'll have to, you know, appeal to all all sides of the base, which includes folks on, on you know, going towards the left as well. And I, I get the point here. I mean, you know, the, the, before Kathleen Wynne, of course, was was Dalton McGiddy. Uh, but if you look at the com- the composition of his cabinet, I mean, he had Greg Sabero, who was a finance minister at one point, uh, Dwight Duncan, uh, Sandra Pupatello, Michael Bryant, uh, attorney general. Uh, these people were all small C conservative when it comes to fiscal policies and things of this nature. But as you say, social constants, et cetera, that used to be the mantra of the Liberal Party. But the pushback that Crombie has received from making those comments about, yeah, maybe we can have, justify some moves into the green belt. Uh, the hue and cry from the liberals, not just from the, the MDP, but from the liberals on that, it was quite amazing. It seems to me as if an awful lot of them are pretty comfortable over there on the left. Yeah. And, you know, I think Bonnie Crombie has had these, um, you know, but in her mouth moments. Uh, but a part of me thinks that this is also just her wearing her mayor's hat. I mean, we know that there's she's obviously been a, a federal liberal politician, too. You know, she she knows uh, the party and she knows how to play in, in partisan in a partisan field, but she's also been mayor for a very long time. And I think that, you know, just the insiders I've been speaking with that are close to her say that a lot of these times she's just wearing her mayor's hat. And of course, you know, a, a mayor could probably see um, some benefit in, in developing some some parts of the green belt, some some swapping going on there. Um, and, and so I think that, you know, she is kind of approaching this from a bit of a, a different perspective here. But you're right. You know, this is obviously she's obviously going to have to win over these liberals and she's going to need to 
um, you know, be clear on her stance, put out what she's proposing, not have so many of these uh, missteps happening in her campaign. Because of course, she she is seen as a front runner. She's coming into the race a little later than usual. This liberal leadership race is one member, one vote, which means that, you know, the, the most folks you can bring to 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 be on your side and, and vote for you, that's the person who's going to win here. And so I think that, you know, Bonnie Crombie would do well to to figure out what she stands for, communicate that clearly to people and and just stand by it because you know Doug Ford has has just look at Doug Ford I mean he's made a lot of um you know what would seem as controversial or maybe even unpopular decision making we were not talking about opening up the green belt when he was elected and now we are but we're not really seeing that having a lasting damage on uh, on his numbers and the polls and so I think you know the, the liberals here need to look at at, they need to read the room essentially and, and what the general public wants. I'm not saying they, they necessarily want to open up the green belt, but I think that just having a, a staunch, you know, opinion on it, closing the door completely when we know that, you know, there are certain white belt areas that potentially could, could be opened up. I think Bonnie needs to just make her points clearer rather than um, having to backtrack because I think that's just been a lot more damaging for her when you have to explain things, you know, when you announce things, you never raise more questions um, than answers over it. And so I think she just kind of needs to figure out where she stands and her line and stand by it. And, you know, I think that it could be palatable to a lot of the general public. Well, we'll be watching for your reporting on it over the next couple of days. Uh, these guys, have, uh, it, it's going to be really interesting. This is not going to be a quiet summer with uh, at provincial politics, that's for sure. Uh, as always, Sabrina, thank you so much for this. I always appreciate our conversations. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Sabrina Nanju, publisher for Queen's Park Observer. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.